Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Sebastian, thank you so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. It is truly an honor to have the new Venture Challenge winner on our show. Thank you for having me. I kind of want to dive right into NVC. For listeners who may or may not know, Sebastian is the founder of the startup that won Chicago Booth's annual startup competition. And it's a huge deal. The company's been making the rounds in the local press. Some might say he's the talk of the town. So it's exciting that we got him on our podcast, I have to say. What was it like to win that, Sebastian? What was the feeling when you heard that your guys, when you heard your company's name called out? <laughs> that, that's actually a good question. I would say it's a very uh, like unreal or surreal, I don't know which one, but a, a very powerful feeling, especially for us, because like funny story, when we never thought we would get to the finals, like we never thought we would win for a second. I mean, at the beginning, when, when you go in, you're all gung-ho and, and, and you go in to win. So that, that's how you get in. But this this year's competition was like really strong. Like, like the other yeah. companies were really good. So so when we were um, in the finals and then we, we did our pitch and, and everybody else did, we were actually the, the first ones to do it early morning. And then we got to see the others and the others were like very excited and they, they tried to beat you. Like that's the dynamic of, of a competition. So so it's uh, it's kind of, wow, like I think they actually did beat us. And then when they start announcing the, the winners, they start from the bottom up. So then they go number 10 or something like that, X company. And then we're like, all right, we're, we're at least number nine. So that's, that's a good thing, right? Like, <laughs> we're not at the bottom. Uh, no disrespect to anyone who's in the bottom because that's already in the finals. But, but I mean, good. Like we, we didn't think we were going to get here. Then number nine. And that was actually our favorite. Like internally, we had like a, like a favorite. We, we thought this company was going to win. So it was like, wow. Maybe, maybe we do have a shot. Maybe there's something into it. Number eight, seven, six, and, and we cannot believe it. Like, it. Funny, like internally, my one of my co-founders and I, we were like DMing in a sense. And he were, we were actually angry. We were angry because we legit, we thought they, they forgot about us. <laughs> we thought they legit forgot about us. And, and, and that we were like, there was this clerical or admin error or something. And we were like getting ready to like complain or to, like whatever it is. And then... <laughs> we get to number one and it's us and, and that was really like really unreal like we did not expect that at all and i think it's also a process that is year long right it, it is something that when did you start out on the nvc journey i think that'll contextualize yeah. how much work goes into this challenge how hard it is to win I would love to hear your sort of perspective on the journey to the top of the podium absolutely so it's everybody's journey is a bit different in, in NPC, right? The, our journey started two and a half years ago when we started the company. So many peop, many different teams go in at different stages. Some have like well-developed companies, others have just an idea. So so that's been a, determining in a sense where your journey really starts. And and I know it sounds like BS um, in a sense, but it, it's really the case because like everything everything we did for the last two and a half years was crucial and integral to our our the, the actual competition it was really 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 important now the the competition itself that's another thing people many people join booth uh, and they choose that mba because of these competitions so even if the, the kind of formal 
competition hasn't started. You are working on your business and you're talking to people and you're trying to put forward like the best version of yourselves uh, to improve your odds. So as I was saying, for everybody, it's a little bit different. We, for us, it was funny. The actual competition lasts like four months, right? That's the actual, like, like the, once you go, like, once you get in, in a sense, and that's the first cutoff, then the, the clock starts ticking and it's four months. But as I was saying, the work to get in is actually very long. But in any case, when we, we applied the day, we actually got started on our application the day before the deadline, which is very weird. Most people get started like months before. Because again, like we, we didn't think we were going to win. This was a business we started a few years ago because we were passionate about it. And it, it, it kind of, it was a good way for me to pay for my, my tuition at Boot. So I'm pretty stoked about that. Like it was very good. But we didn't think it was going to be an MDC winner. We, we never thought of, because we see, I don't know, you see companies like Grubhub, right? Like uh, you see companies like Tovala, like you see these like simple mills, you see these big names. And you seriously, you just don't picture yourself in that. At least me, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I, I, I'm that way. But you don't picture yourself there. And then the thing, this was super interesting. When I, there was one professor, and I, I, I spoke to this professor, who shall remain nameless until I get his authorization <laughs> to, to uh, disclose the name. But and I, 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 I just told him like I'm toying with this uh, idea of getting into NBC. What do you think? I, I, maybe my my company's not good enough, but the, the experience sounds amazing. And and a fun fact, it's the highest rated class because it's technically a class booth by far, like by by a good margin. Uh, so it's it just seemed like a good experience, and that was the first motivator for us to join. And he was like, oh, so you have a working company. Tell me more about it. And, and then he said, yeah, maybe now this is not like a, like an MVC winner. But trust me, get, go in, work hard, and you may end up with an MVC winner. Uh, and, and that was like a big, like our, our, like our first big push. Then what most people don't realize, and this is like, a, like an important thing to note, you may not have at the beginning an MVC winner. Almost nobody has. That, that's what most people don't know. Almost nobody has an MVC winner day one. What happens is that you go in with an idea. You go in uh, with an idea that, that's in a certain type of market. So you, you need a good market. You need a growing market, a big market. That, that's kind of, that's a good predictor of whether you're going to do well or not. But once you get that, you're going to change. Your ideas are going to change. You're going to, I'm not going to say pivot because it's not like that substantial, but you're, you have access to world class, and I'm not kidding, world-class VCs, coaches, entrepreneurs in the Midas list, I think. it's I believe it's a hun- the, the top 100 VC investors in the world. We had three literally judging us in the finals. That, that doesn't happen. It's just a thing that in real life out there when you're fundraising or trying to develop a business, that doesn't happen. Well, you get access to all of that. So with all that input from like legit like dozens of people that are of that quality, you can end up with, if, as long as you start with a diamond in the rough, you end up with a diamond. You just got to put in the work and listen, listen, listen. And, and with conviction, you have to listen, work hard, and, and you get there. So I think that leads into what is the origin of Andes and what are some of the changes that you went through throughout the NVC process? Absolutely. So we, as I was saying, we started Andes two and a half years ago. Technically, it was March 2019. At the time, I was working in, um, in investment banking in Canada in the infrastructure and real estate group. And for all those at home, you don't know, maybe, Andy's is in, in that space. It's in real estate. Many people 
many co-workers of mine there, we invest in real estate because if, if you're doing like multi-billion dollar deals, like you double in like tiny deals for yourself, right? Like it, you can pay your bonus and then you go buy a, like, like an investment property. That, that's kind of how it goes. So pretty much everybody out of like 20 co-workers or so, pretty much everybody was interested in short-term rentals. So like Airbnbs, BRBOs, whatever. But very few go and buy one because because it's weird, you know, man. It's 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 not a field that many people know how to navigate. It's it's not easy. Um, finding the right property, evaluating the deal, like it's not easy. Then managing, it's it's pretty complicated. So so it's like uh, the wild west in a sense. And when you have like older people, sometimes uh, maybe not even that old, but people that have been shaped as professionals in real estate under the quote unquote traditional model. Like it's just very different for them. It's like a weird framework. So, so I, I just thought that was interesting. Like if they they, they want to do this thing, but they can't, quote unquote. Like I, I found it weird. Why why can't you? So I did it. I did it myself. I went and I bought one. I I had to put in a ton of work and like upfront due diligence kind of time, and it was very profitable. It was like a good deal, and and it's not like I'm an expert. So you bought a short-term rental property and then you put it on Airbnb. Was that Correct. the method through which? Got it. Correct. But I, I didn't want to, ma- I mean, I was working like a hundred hour week, so I didn't want to manage myself. So I, I did the buying. So I got a really good real estate agent, like top 1% in Canada. Then like I, I, I was convinced that was like the best use of my time at, initially because that kind of scales your own time. So I, I got that one in. We got along super well. The guy's like a, an XMA professional, like MBA. So it's a really good agent. Then we, we went in and bought this good property for Airbnb. Uh, I had to use a lot of data to do that. Then I got a property management company because I knew I, I didn't want to spend all that time doing it. And that's when the journey really began because then we realized that most companies are pretty uh, subpar in a sense. Like we, we got calls. Like I remember like one night we got a call at 2, 2 a.m., 3 a.m. or something like that from the cops saying that there's like legal activity in my, in my apartment. That's not a call you want to have. Right? And it's like a Wednesday, not even a Friday. So that, that really says a lot about the mismanagement that was going on at the time. But we were making money. We were definitely making a returns. So that that was the first thing. That was like the first kind of light bulb moment, which is like, they're not doing it well. Like, I'm not used to this level of like, like quality of service in a sense, but they're making money. So, so there's something here. Maybe there's some room for growth, you know, some room for professionalization or however you would say that such that things work a little bit better, such that people like me can trust these guys. Because I know for a fact, if I tell, if I share my experience with my coworkers, they're not going to go in because that's not their expectations. So I don't think, and the people that were in that market were like younger crowd, like like people that, that were less risk averse and, and more fine with getting that call. So th- at that point, I was thinking, mm, maybe, maybe there's this market that's untapped. I mean, maybe it's a larger market than you would expect. That was the first time. Then, then I had a, a conversation that, that was very interesting with a, with a managing partner at a large asset manager in Canada. And, and I was thinking, you know, I'm toying with this idea of, of launching a fund because if, if, if we can get returns consistently, this is going to beat like every other fund that you have, like point blank. Uh, and he said, you know, super interesting. Love the idea. Who's going to operate? Like me. All right. How many years of operations do you have? 0.1. <laughs> and then, and then he's like, exactly. And then he's like, all right, Sebastian, I like the idea, but go and operate five years, seven years or so. And then you pretty much have a blank check. Like, like that, that's how, how interested we are. But first show us that you can operate. Cause once we go in here, 
in this kind of asset class, we're getting married. And 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 you gotta be careful because it's not like your regular like long-term rental where there's abundance of like professional property managers. If one fails, you just change the operator. Here, there's no more than two or three that could operate at a national scale. And now you're pitching yourself, sure. And if you fail, you're going to provide one of these guys. But even yourself, you said that these guys are no good. So, I mean, it's like you're pushing our problem onto us. So that's not how it works for us. And, and, and that was like truly the, the really big light bulb moment, which was, all right, this is what we have to do. If we want to go and make this big investment vehicle and get access to the, to like the larger market to short-term rentals as an asset class, we got to first really understand and dominate the, the, the operation side of things. As at the same time, we, we keep getting more sophisticated in how we invest. We Because there's a lot of like local knowledge that you have to have. You need to have like, like a strong geographic role in a sense. You can't just go and buy from Zillow a property for Airbnb. It's not going to work. It's not going to work very well for you. So that was like light bulb bubble. Tide, in a sense, there's this wave. We've got to ride it. There's a big space. Real estate as an asset class is the biggest thing on earth. At the time I had, I, I put my, I saw some like research material uh, at, at the bank I was working in uh, about short-term rentals. And that was like the, like the big next thing in a sense, at least our research department thought about that. Um, and and with the sharing economy, gig economy, work from home, all these trends, and that was pre-COVID. All these trends, there's just one direction. It's it's up and to the right. Uh, so it, it kind of just made sense. Then I got accepted into Booth because I was applying. I, I had been applying to uh, to business schools for some time, and at that point, that was already. I have seven months of kind of risk-free runway. Let's do it. Let, let's see what happens. And at that point, we went all in and started like really getting the, our hands dirty and operating. I had to clean bathrooms and all that stuff at the beginning, but we did very well. We did very well. We grew quickly and, and we definitely did better than expected at the beginning. And then the rest is history. What markets did you start in and where are you guys now? Yes. So we started in Toronto, up in Canada. Because uh, a couple of reasons. Well, one, I was living there, so that, that makes things easier. Uh, second, at the time, that was a particularly attractive market from a, a like a returns perspective. Like it, it's really, it was really good. So that was that. And then we quickly expanded into Chile, where I'm originally from, and my co-founder is also from. So he took care of those operations. And also, we had like a tiny footprint in in the U.S. in like north of Miami. So um, those markets are not super developed because, again, like Toronto was super profitable. So we really focused there. But now precisely what we want to do is like roll out here in the States very, very, very aggressively. Are you looking at the larger markets like New York and, and L.A. and Houston? Or are you trying to go for more of the secondary markets? How are you sort of um, envisioning the rollout? I would say our major thing is regulatory risk. That's if there's one thing that we learned in Toronto is that you you cannot overestimate the importance of that from a credit perspective. So so we are that's the first thing we look at, right? Like how is the regulatory environment looking here? And then we start looking into returns or whatever. So it correlates very well with secondary markets in a sense. Like once if everybody's looking into the market, chances are you're gonna find some headwinds. Can you walk me through the end-to-end journey of using your service? What do you guys provide and who are you selling into? Absolutely. That's one of those things that we kind of improved 
during NVC? Because we used to have like two separate services, just like property management, because that's what we were trying to learn. And then advisory in terms of investments, right? Like, because that's what we were already good at and we wanted to keep getting better. But now what we do is that we provide a turnkey access to short-term rentals as investments. So what that means like in, in, in brief is pretty much all you need is a certain budget. And then after like a month or so, you end up with a, a top like ranking property and that makes you money and that you can use from time to time. So it's, it's a good deal. The, the longer version is something like this. We, our customers are people with, currently at least, people with at least some level of liquidity because you, you need to be able to buy these properties. It's not that much usually because you can do financing, but, but you need to have some cash on hand and that's it. And then you have to have an interest in, in real estate, right? So of course, internally, we're tailoring our product a little bit to a specific niche uh, user, but those are the requirements. Then usually we reach out to our customers first. Like we are very proactive in, in identifying potential qualified leads. And then some people reach out to us as well. Funny thing, 100% of our initial growth was word of mouth. So we deliver good results and people then refer us and that's how we grow. And it's pretty good because those are instantly qualified leads. That's what you want to have. You don't want to waste your time talking to people that, that are not going to buy. So that's a good thing about our business. But uh, but anyway, going back to the, the experience. So then uh, assuming that either we get to the customer or they get to us, the, the, the first part of the user experience is we have a, an initial meeting where uh, we discuss our customer's financial goals, in a sense, because this, I'll be the first one to say, this is not for everybody. I, I think it's like the best risk-adjusted investment you can make, but I don't know if that's the case. It, it goes case by case, and we must make sure that the that our customers understand what they're getting into. We discuss budget. And then we inform them of like we share like some materials around like educational materials around like what can they expect in terms of returns what are the good markets nowadays There's some case studies like uh, like uh, stories in a sense from current customers and how they're doing we kind of put them up to speed if they're good then they sign their contract or service contract and then we go hunting so we have algorithms that help us identify good properties in our already pre-selected markets. So we did a lot of due diligence on, on which markets are we gonna operate in, like a lot. We spent like weeks doing that stuff, entire weeks. And after we get that done and we make some partnerships in there, those are get pre-approved. And then we start deploying our algorithms in those sectors, those geographies. Once we have that budget, as I was saying before, we start looking for these properties. Once we have like a set of properties that look good, like from a numbers perspective, we send them out to our, our uh, agent par uh, partners, right? So it, those are like top ranking partners in geography. And then they start filtering properties with their own eye because that's a huge value add from our network is that we only partner up with the best, right? Because even if you want to have, even if you have the best algorithm on earth right now, there are things that are localized. There are some things that you just need a level of like local knowledge, right? So we leverage that as well. And then they make, they give us a short list, like immediately, almost immediately. They, we reduce that time frame from like weeks to uh, hours because the, our algorithms make the heavy lifting. And then it's a matter of like due diligence from the, the partner perspective, perspective. Then they send those deals to us. We rerun them by our model, but like more fine-tuned and, and provide like very detailed financials. And then we send that back to our customers. That's usually like a one day thing, like from one day to the other. And then they get, yeah, it's super quick. And then they get um, a, a report. Once they get the report, if they give us a go ahead, then we go on and negotiate the purchase itself. We don't own it. We don't buy the property. It's the, it's the customer. So, and that's a good thing about our model, which is 
you don't have to rely on somebody else to be a custodian or or like the controller of your asset. You own the asset. It's it's all yours. We just make everything super seamless and and, and easy for you. Instead of having to waste like 100 hours or 150 hours, which our studies say that's probably how long it takes to go and buy one of these things, uh, assuming you start from scratch, you take three hours, right? That, that's the whole thing. And are you seeing many customers who are doing this multiple times? So they're buying multiple, they're using your services for multiple properties. Uh, what's, I guess, what's like the breakdown of usage in terms of using your platform for multiple properties versus one single property? How do you think about that? Yeah, we have a bit of everything. So we started with people that just bought one in a sense, but not to pat ourselves on the back, but we delivered such good results that that after a year of, of operations, you had basically, you had enough money to go and buy another one. So the first batch of customers, like upwards of 30% reinvested with us after a year, right? So that was very good. Uh, that's not norm, by the way. That was like, like just outrageously good, but, but that happened. Then we also have a bunch of, I wouldn't say institutional investors, but like larger investors, right? Like either from family offices or small funds that, that do deploy more capital. So we're working on a few of those deals now. And then, and quote unquote, everything in between. We have some developer customers that, that buy sequentially. So buy one, a month later, another one, a month later, another one. There's a little bit of everything. What is the revenue model that you use? How do you guys sort of monetize these services that you're providing? Yes. So there's a small upfront fee when we buy the property. It's very tiny and it's it's in, in, the, in the documents in a sense. And, um, and it's basically like a small closing fee when you buy the property and then we get a a margin uh we, we get a, like a fixed percentage of revenues throughout the property management phase so after we buy the property and we start managing it we get a fixed uh percentage so that, that's pretty much a revenue model it's very simple it's very very simple when you were pitching at the new venture challenge and when you've been pitching subsequently or even before that did you ever get the question around scaling this how does this scale from the you know the size it is today to the hundred million dollar uh unicorn outcome how do you guys think about that scaling process and bringing on more employees i would imagine the algorithms part that scales pretty pretty easily and it sounds like you can leverage a lot of these uh partnerships throughout the country again to sort of outsource at least some of the work or some of the value proposition but how do you guys think about scaling in the future that's an excellent question. It shows a little bit of a field expertise because it is very hard. It's very hard. I, I'll tell you and everybody at home listening, if, if you're thinking about doing something similar, think about it very hard because we thought it was going to be easy. It's a real pain in the neck. It's like you got to be committed. It, it, you got to be good at it. Execution, I cannot tell you how important it is. You got to be like really into the weeds. It's not easy. It's very hard. That's what I was going to say. Very hard. Now, even the algorithm, we thought it was going to scale like nicely. Even that is hard to scale. Even that's very hard to scale because like when you start an algorithm or like any kind of logic with a certain data set, it's almost guaranteed that when you transport that to another data set, it's not going to work well. So, so even that's like super hard to scale. And then uh, we, we're not at a scale at which, of course, because we're kind of barely getting started, but we're not at a scale where we're seeing like architecture issues. But at some point, that's going to be a thing as well. Then we're going to have to rework everything and then change your architecture and then maybe go serverless. I don't know. There are different things that, that 
that everything about scaling is hard. That's what I would say. Absolutely everything. Then, for instance, getting those partnerships. It's not easy getting those partnerships because we got to do substantial due diligence in different people. It's convenient that our team is particularly well suited for this. Like I said, I have over five years of institutional real estate investing experience. And my co-founder has eight years of investing in real estate uh, within family office contacts. Another co-founder. She's a management consultant and, and involved in the like service operations kind of things, which is particularly useful. And, and another early joiners, she's like really passionate about real estate. She worked with a major asset manager on the real estate portfolio. So we have strengths. Without those strengths, we would not be able to do this. We would not have the credibility to broker those partnerships. We would not be able to manage the partnerships because when you're like it has to be a, a, like a back and forth, right? It's not like you're, you're not just, just going to offer some terms and people are going to sign, like rush to sign it. They, they got to see something for them as well. Having that sector expertise helps you a lot in that sense because you know what you're talking about. There's uh, they, they, the other, like the counterparty sees that they, there's some benefit, some clear, tangible benefit for them. Uh, in this thing that they can learn as well, that they can be part of something big and, and, and that's being led by people that know what they're doing. And that's not easy to get. Like we were very lucky in that sense. And, and that's why going back to this scaling issue, it's not easy. Everything that can go wrong goes wrong when you're scaling. So try to, whatever you do, like this is a major point. I, I assume that it's going to be very hard to scale and see how you can maximize your probability of success or non-failure while you're scaling because everything breaks down, like everything's hard. So choose wisely, choose very wisely what you're going to try to scale. Well, you made a great point and, you know, voicing over, I think a lot of the parts of that answer, it sounds like a lot of investors probably loved the domain expertise on the roster. Yes. In terms of founder market fit, this is a great example of uh, a team of founders who seems very well suited to this particular venture. I, I, I'm a little curious now about the algorithm. Who built that out? Is it is there machine learning components to it? Is it How does that algorithm, without revealing any proprietary secrets, <laughs> just at a high yeah. level, how did you guys go about building that? Yeah. So, well, I built it myself. I, it's one of those things like by, by, I'm an engineer by training. So, so as you were saying, there was just this weird fit. Like it was like everything aligned and, 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 and things worked out. And I also happened to, um, to be big into uh, machine learning and all, all that stuff, data analytics. So everything aligned, like it's just one of those things where I tell you, like, like I, I've seen many people trying to do similar things and they fail because of these things. And, and I don't think I, I would be very well suited to do other things. Other things that perhaps to me are sexier or more interesting. I it, It's a competitive world out there, man. It, everybody wants a piece of the cake. So yeah, so I built that algorithm. It's not super like fancy or anything like that. It, it's sophisticated in the sense that it, it has a lot of like uh, sector, like domain expertise in a sense. Not everybody knows how to invest uh, for like multi-billion dollar deals. And, and we bring that level of sophistication to our uh, initial set of algorithms. We are incorporating machine learning, but that in, in the RV2 in a sense, and we're developing that part now, that's not flushed out at all. You need people underestimate that as well. You need a lot of data to train well these models. And you also need to know very well what you're doing. Because uh, I see many people, at, 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 like many co uh, like colleagues or like, other students at, at, at Booth that they, they always jump to, oh, well, let's do a machine learning algorithm. That's like their go-to answer. And man, it's so hard. I'm sure there are like algorithms out there that are like uh, pre-canned and that you can deploy, but they're going to work for like 
50% of the cases decent enough. And once you start scaling and getting bigger, they're going to break down and, and nothing's going to work. You need to know what you're doing very well. You need to know even quote unquote, the, the math behind these things. Like you, you really need to understand, like, how do I tinker with this thing? Right? Like, what are the different like knobs and buttons and levers that I need to pull to, to make this work? And it just so happened that I know a little bit about that. And we have another early joiner that's, it's, I don't want to disclose too much, but he's like a world-class expert, right? So that really helps. You mentioned delivering good results for customers. If I'm a customer, does that mean, obviously there's an ROI from a time perspective, being able to sort of get an actionable investment in a day's time is incredible. But how do you guys measure to date good results for your customers? Is it yield or percentage return on their investment? I'm just really curious about how you quantify the ROI that you're bringing to your customer base. Yeah, our our main metric is total return. That's our main metric. And that's a component of like gap rate in a sense, like your cash return and and capital appreciation. That's something that we bake in into our analysis because we really try to put ourselves in in our customer's shoes. Like it's not... We, that's one thing that we're particularly good at, actually. <clears throat> it's all about the customer for us. And our customer, we treat as a professional investor because that's the kind of customers that we had throughout our professional careers. That, that's how we are used to treating with uh, customers. That's our customer. So we treat our customers today as if they were like a multi-billion dollar corporation, a major asset manager, a fund, uh, an endowment. Like Those were our kind of customers. And for them, cash is good, but there's also capital. Right, like how how much is my capital appreciation appreciating? Sorry, and then and you would see both components differently. Like capital appreciation is riskier, less liquid, right? Cash flow is better in a sense; it's immediate. So you would discount them differently as well. So that total return is like our big number. We do track both separately the capital appreciation because we we try to make also opportunistic buys. We try to see do we we are very opinionated. Do we think that this asset is undervalued? And we try to go for those assets, right? Like, do we think we can make what we call like a, a day one equity return, right? By our purchase uh, price versus the, the fair value. Nowadays, in, in this COVID environment, it's a little bit the opposite. You have to pay a premium because there's uh, it's hard to buy these things. But we make up for that on the cash flow component. So we are actively shifting our market strategy, choosing markets where because of, of the lower potential for capital appreciation, we try to make up for it with more cash flows. So that's how we think about these things. Meaning more, when you say more cash flows, you mean more renters through the door paying for whatever property it is that you're you're managing? So it could be more renters, but it, sometimes it's actually le- fewer renters. It, it's more the total revenue because sometimes you get a market properties differently sometimes you get to see is there like a niche inside a certain market that's underserved and that we can i give an example like for instance there's some like a, a ultra luxury kind of like um, assets in certain markets where like people like for individual investors that's too risky in a sense because there's not enough of them but we have enough data from working with all the people to know that you know there's a good probability of success here it's not a outrageous or ludicrous proposition right so things like that sometimes uh, you gotta you gotta work with what with the hands you're dealt and there's always a way to get yield at least in our market in, in our asset class and and with our team we can always get a yield we we sometimes we gotta look a little bit harder <laughs> but but there's always a way to get it i feel like i mean there's so many trends here that i feel like are are, are tailwinds for you and for the business are there any macro trends especially coming out of covid 
throughout this past year that you've really kept your eye on that you, you in your mind, represent the biggest or one of the biggest tailwinds for this business? Yeah, so we are. We're keeping a close eye on like work from home from like different companies and their relocation or work from home policies, right? That's a big one for us. We're uh, also looking at the international market and how and their COVID restrictions because the U.S. is among the first ones to open from the major developed nations, leaving like New Zealand aside. And so that has strong implications in terms of tourism, for instance, in terms of the demand for our product from our client's perspective, not from like our service perspective. So yeah, we are, we're looking, we're, we're very uh, cognizant about that. That, that is, th- those two things are very important that they shape our future strategy quite a lot because there's a natural pivot in our future, which I, I, I don't think I can share at this point, but suffice to say it's a huge market uh, and we need a few catalysts to be there. But once they get there, and it's a matter of when, not not if, uh, then we got to be well prepared to ride that wave again. And it's very exciting. Do you see any other competitors out there targeting this niche strategy? I'm fascinated by what the competitive landscape might be. Yes, there definitely are people out there that are trying to do similar things. I think their their angle is significantly different. But definitely within the same asset class, definitely the day-to-day looks very similar. There's people, I, I just happen to think that our proposition is, is better and that our team is particularly well-suited to pursue this venue. So, and I think other people have, since they have different angles, I think their teams are particularly, most of them, not all of them, particularly well-suited for their angle. And there's a little bit of everything. There's, there, it's a, it's, as I was saying, it's a huge market. So it's, it's not like there's space for everybody because there are some things that just have no product market fit and, and they should not exist and or some teams that are just not well-suited. For instance, if I, if, I don't know, like if, if a guy with experience in, I don't know, in like digital electronics starts to do this thing, we're going to kick their ass. <laughs> like it, It's going to be very hard for them to, to uh, stand their ground. And, and the opposite is true. Like if, if we try to do something, I don't know, in, in interior design, my team is awful at that, <laughs> right? So, so, so we would last very little. But there's people. There's for sure. There's people. I don't think there's a single, like, major idea on earth where there's nobody else. Like, truly, no alternative. Not, not, no, nothing that others would choose. I don't think that that's like a common, or even realistic expectation. Your background. I mean, it still just fascinates me. I mean, I think. A few years ago, when you were working in banking in the industrial sector and the real estate sector, did you ever imagine you'd be the founder of a uh, of a new venture challenge winning uh, startup looking to uh, looking to find product market fit? <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> to be frank, no, because I, I always knew I was going to be an entrepreneur. So everybody in my family is an entrepreneur. My dad, my mom, my grandparents, like pretty much everybody. So it pretty much runs in their blood. And it's funny, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing as well, because when you're growing up, you kind of monkey see, monkey do in a sense. So there's some influence there as well. But I always knew I was going to do something entrepreneurial. I knew my time in the corporate world was like like limited. Like at some point, I, I was going to shift. Uh, and I'm not saying I, I wouldn't go back. I think there's a lot to learn and, and, and there are very good, interesting opportunities there. You can do in, intrapreneurial things within the company as well. But I think leading a company is really one of those things that I wanted to do. Uh, for a long time. This is the third startup I started as well. So it's not like the first rodeo either. Um, 
And uh, but I never thought it was going to be an NDC winner. I, I never pictured myself that way. I always I, I, it goes back to the the initial thing we were talking about. I don't think many people do picture themselves that way either. Some people I think they do, but and I've met a few of them, and it's good for them. But I think the majority like they don't. I think the majority they're just like head down trying to make their product work and they, they're trying to make something big out of their idea. And then when opportunity comes and knocking, you open the door. That, that's pretty much the whole thing. For the new venture challenge, your guys' pitch came off so great and you all look so polished. But I got to ask, how many times do you do that pitch in the mirror before <laughs> you had to do it on NVC? I think I would do it 1 million times in advance and I'd probably still mess something up. I, so I'm curious what that process was like for you. Yeah, I, I'd be curious to ask Christina about that because Christina, wow, she really nailed it. Like she has this impressive natural ability to do like, I don't know, like presentation skills. Like it's really impressive. On my side, I'm not sure. I, I don't think I'm that good. But we practiced like in all seriousness, like at least 50 times. And we didn't, at least me, I didn't do it in front of a mirror. I just did it with people, right? Like my wife or like with my colleagues there. It was practice, 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 right? Like we practiced a lot. We practiced at least a full week like uh, of like this was the, the number one thing. And it's not just practicing. It's just like, all right, so so what what went wrong? What can we improve? And then like, like uh, engineering the thing a little bit better or going back to the drawing board, changing the, like our layout, changing the, the, the choice of words, changing everything, changing the pauses, changing when we click, like literally every detail. And it's very iterative because then you, you start like tinkering with the details in a sense, but then you realize sometimes that you have to tinker with the, broader like bigger picture and that happens a lot in NPC. it's kind of annoying because again i wouldn't call them pivots because it's not like you're changing your whole business model but major like major changes right and and then kind of the idea changes a little bit so then you kind of have to change the whole thing again and and, and it's very annoying because because you, you end up with something that's like 95 percent of the way there and then but you realize you can never get to 100 so so then you have to go back and change the big things in the hopes that you can get to 100%, and you'll you will not know until you start thinking with the small things again. So it was a lengthy process. That that's for sure. Would you say you know now looking back on it, having graduated from Booth and you know starting your next next adventure? If I'm a founder or I'm an entrepreneur and I'm contemplating going to Booth, going to business school, and using that as a launch pad for my business for my startup, would you say absolutely go for it? Absolutely go for it. That's what I would say. Yes, I would repeat that, and I would so I would use stronger words. But uh, what I would say is, first, it's not for everybody. I absolutely think having gone through this process, not not MVC, I mean, but like entrepreneurship multiple times, it's not for everybody, and it's fine. Don't beat yourself up. I think nowadays, unfortunately, this thing is like overly like people think of entrepreneurship as sexier than it actually is. Glamorize that. That's a good word. Yes. So it, it's easy to think to project. It's very similar to like that, like social media syndrome or something like that, like effect, whatever, where you only see the good, the good, like, uh, and you don't see the bad and the ugly. And there's a lot more bad and ugly than good. This is shit on more of that. It's like 99% of it is crying, the hard work, disappointment. It's the other 1% that makes it all worth it. And it's not for everybody. For some people, that 1%, is, it doesn't make it worth it, right? It doesn't make it worth your time. And that's, I think, the vast majority of people. It takes like a, a certain kind of like defect <laughs> in your brain to, to kind of to behave that way. 
But for some people, that is. And I find that for some people, that quote-unquote defect is like either an extreme passion for the this, this subject matter, so the field, the whatever it is, they they are extremely passionate about it. They, there's like a, almost like a mission that they have to achieve, right? Think of your like Elon Musk's, right? Like like they they are really passionate about these things. Like like that kind of guy, like it's very driven. And whether he's like entrepreneur or not, that's just an accident. It's I I, I believe that he, that kind of folk they end up in that position because that's where they can be most effective. But they wouldn't mind doing anything else, whatever you call it. Like that's just like the Western structure for business in a sense. And uh, being CEO and founder gives you more flexibility and, and, and reach. So that's the one kind of guy. Then there's another guy that likes like execution, right? Like that likes being in the middle of the storm and, and like cutting deals and, and talking to people, uh, doing interviews and podcasts with cool guys. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of fall into that bucket a little bit more. Right. I like my subject matter and everything. I'm, I'm pretty passionate about it. But for me, it's more about uh, being a, a like a shaker mover, like doing these things. I, I just like it. I, I, I don't see myself. I, I feel limited if I'm not doing this. Right. And it's not for it's not everybody. Some people it's the other way around. Some people being in a position where there's like a blank slate and then now you have to go and choose your path. That's limiting. For some people, they rather have a more structured approach when they can see a, a clear line to the finish, right? Like, and uh, they see that there's this path, and it's an amazing path. If you're going to be, I don't know, partner at McKinsey, for instance, or MD at Goldman Sachs, or whatever it is, or even uh, like I don't know, at the helm of a of a nonprofit, those are really good paths to take, right? Really, really good path if that's your thing, right? And for some people, that's more empowering than basically somebody like life telling you, all right, figure it out, go and figure it out. So I would say that, that those are the two kinds of people I see as entrepreneurs the most often. If you are one of those, go to booth if you can. Do NVC twice if you can. There's nothing better than that. Like, I, 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 I'm not kidding. Like, nothing better than you can do. Because at booth, you get a lot of the business experience, right? Like, the formalities, in a sense, which have helped me tremendously. Like, even, even though I had, like, uh, the investment banking uh, background and all that stuff, there's a ton of stuff I didn't know. Right. And I, I learned. And, and as an entrepreneur, you go into booth with a different mindset. You're thinking about your business. You're thinking about, gee, how can this case study help me grow my business? How can I be a better entrepreneur or a better executive in the future? Like stealing a little bit of this guy's experience. Right. Like or as Newton said, like um, what was the expression again? Like uh, I, I got this far because I was able to stand uh, on top of the giant on top of the shoulders on the, the shoulders, I think. of Yeah. Yes, of the people that came behind me, oh, sorry, before me. So, so that that's a, a similar concept, right? If you're an entrepreneur or an entrepreneurial guy, you go into booth and you really get to study the giants that that came before you, right? And that's really in and on itself like an impressive thing. But then on top of that, you have I, what I think is by far the best entrepreneurship curriculum uh, for on any for any business school on earth. Like I, I think by far, bound like. Bar none, by far, you have a flexible curriculum. So there's at least like 80 classes you can take around entrepreneurship and you can take any of them, right? You have professors like Mark Davies, Steve Kaplan, Mike Alter, like like people that like, they're seriously world-renowned entrepreneurs or people that are inside like private equity and virtual capital community, right? Like people that are like amazing that have done it, proved themselves in real life, not just like studying a case study, right? And then you have NVC itself. And that's like the, the crown jewel. Like that's like the cherry on top of the cake. Like that's like the thing that really 
encompasses everything else and makes this thing what I think is the best experience for an entrepreneur that you can get. Right. So I would say, yeah, heck yeah, yeah, go for it. Sebastian, I think we just convinced 50 people to go to Booth. <laughs> and so I'm expecting some kind of revenue share agreement Absolutely. with Chicago Capital for all the tuition that we just brought in their door. <laughs> I, I want to go reapply for Booth right now. <laughs> I know. Sebastian, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been amazing. Congratulations once again on the New Venture Challenge win on the New Venture Challenge. Uh, success. It's so well-deserved. And, you know, I think we're all just excited to see what's next for you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.